For Wednesday, April 22nd, 2020, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, the spread of the coronavirus looks to be slowing down in Georgia, but that doesn't mean the state is out of the woods. The flattening of cases doesn't mean that the risk has passed. And so the question becomes, if we begin to lift safeguards, are we going to emphasize that reopening at the cost of our health and our lives? Joshua White, a quantitative biologist at Georgia Tech, joins me to share what the numbers are telling him about the COVID-19 pandemic in the state. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. It seems this pandemic has turned a great many of us into armchair epidemiologists. I can imagine I'm not the only one who thinks I really know a thing or two when I say see a graph or chart mapping the spread of the coronavirus pop up on my Twitter feed. Turns out there are people trained in this stuff who study and model how diseases spread, and I'm lucky enough to be joined by one today. Joshua Weitz is a quantitative biologist at Georgia Tech, where he studies how viruses transform human health and the fate of our planet. And what better time to talk with him than now? Joshua, thanks for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me, Sam. So let's start with the news of the week, if we could. Governor Brian Kemp will be allowing some businesses to start resuming some operations later this week, citing data that the pandemic seems to be on the decline here in the state. What do you make of that? And and does that kind of match up with with the data that, that you're looking at? Yeah, I think we should be very cautious about moving forward, even to something resembling business as usual, until we have the right safeguards in place and really the right public health infrastructure to make sure that when we start to go about our business, that we have a sense of confidence that the risk that we may be interacting with someone who might be infectious, maybe asymptomatically not even know it, is low. And likewise, that we have a sense that we're not asymptomatically infected and might uh, endanger others. So at the moment, I would say that the governor is going too fast without the right safeguards and without the right evidence. It's true that cases have flattened, but the flattening of cases doesn't mean that the risk has passed. And so the question becomes, if we begin to lift safeguards, are we going to emphasize that reopening at the cost of our health and our lives? Well, and and maybe let's, let's expand on that a little bit. There's been a lot of attention focused on maybe activity peaking. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean, right, that we're out of the woods. Right. So I think this is one of these complicated issues that we're familiar with certain kinds of, let's say, threats or disasters. And, and I've used this analogy before, and I hope you don't mind. I'll use it again here, which is we just had last week or so tornadoes pass through the state. The issue there with a tornado is that it comes in a storm front. It's potentially quite uh, dangerous, but then the danger has passed. We've heard a lot about peaks. And if you're hearing that uh, on, from the public side, and you hear the notion that a peak uh, is on its way and then has passed, you get the impression, perhaps rightfully so, that the danger has passed. Fundamentally, the danger has not passed. And the reason is we remain almost entirely immunologically naive. In other words, we remain susceptible to infection by coronavirus. So that means that even if the cases begin to go down, if we relax safeguards, they'll go up again. There's no law that says epidemics only have one peak. There also could be a dangerous plateau in which we essentially enter multiple weeks, if not months, of recurringly high caseloads and fatalities because we haven't taken the necessary steps to get to the point where we can use public health interventions to really locally uh, eliminate this virus or at least get it to the point where we can manage the risk down to much lower levels than we see right now. We assume that every peak you know, everything that goes up must come down, but that's not necessarily the case here. The, the classic example of a peak in an epidemic is that people get sick, transmit to other people, let's say a common cold, and soon we get to the point of herd immunity. Most people that an infectious person might interact with have already been infected and recovered so that they just fundamentally can't infect that many new people. That is not the case for COVID-19 despite the fact that there have been already many fatalities, many cases, reported cases in Georgia on the order of 20,000 and 800 deaths, both of those numbers, particularly the case count, are almost uh, certainly significant underestimates of the true prevalence. Even if that 20,000 was tenfold under, we're talking about 2% of the population having been infected, meaning 98% of us are susceptible. And if 98% of us are susceptible, that means there's nothing to prevent the return of an increase in cases other than our own actions as individuals, but also public health actions. And that's why the governor's decision plays a role. Fundamentally, the risk has not passed, even if the number of cases appears to be flattening or even going down a bit. And I'm, I'm wondering if we can dig into those numbers a little bit and, and maybe try to think about a situation when starting to open up might be safe. I mean, what would you be looking for if you were, say, ad advising a government official about this is what you should see before you really consider a change of policy? I think part of what one would want to see is even less so on the number side, but more on the prevention side, meaning what is our ability to track to trace and to essentially deliver the care necessary for anyone who needs it. And as you know, right at this moment in time and up to this moment in time, we've had an undercapacity with respect to testing. And that means there's probably many people who should be uh, being tested who can't, or an individual who may have been positively tested. Are we doing everything we can to then go back and contact trace? It's possible through traditional public health and epi measures to go and reach out. It's painstaking work. Can we make that digital? There are many ways in which we could think 
about preventative steps to make sure that the case counts keep going down. Because if we just see a transient case count going down and then decide to go back to business as usual and approximation thereof, without those safeguards, there's nothing to prevent it from going back up again. Georgia has not been the only state that has had challenges really getting testing out to people. And if you look at the data on the DPH website, it says that the data for more recent time periods is subject to change because, you know, the the numbers might change. They might get new reports coming in. At this point, do we even have an accurate picture of what this pandemic looks like here in the state of Georgia? We have an incomplete picture. So you're absolutely right in the sense that the data is not just noisy, but lagged. And that's typical with respect to reporting data. But we're certainly not ascertaining all the cases. There are many reasons for that, not only having to do with limitations in testing capacity, which have been woefully inadequate, not just in Georgia, but nationwide, with respect to how much we should, uh, let's say, trust the numbers. I mean, the numbers tell us minimums, but that's like saying, uh, I know a building is at least 100 feet tall. There's a lot of building sizes that are compatible with that idea. So we don't quite know the prevalence. There are reasons to think that we've under-ascertained by a factor of 10. The other issue is that there are many asymptomatic cases. But the thing that I think we can do to try to nail this down and what we should be doing is to use things like a different kind of test, a serological test, to understand at least bounds on how many people have been infected. And that's a totally different kind of test that's been reported on the GADPH site. So ascertainment bias you're talking about here is maybe our system's tendency to only find the sickest people. I mean, would that be like a very simple way to distill that? Yeah, we're just wanting to know to what extent, what fraction of the case are we getting? Are we getting one in 10 are showing up on the GADPH site as laboratory confirmed findings? And I think that's the key way to think about the numbers on that site. That is not telling you the true cumulative prevalence or even the current circulating cases if you look back for the past two weeks. It's telling you how many cases were identified, tested, and lab confirmed, which is a significant underestimate of the true burden of the disease in the state. And then with some kind of serological test, this would test for antibodies. This would be a way to tell who might have been sick with this disease, but they didn't get a test, so they're not showing up in our numbers. Correct. The PCR tests that are really testing for viral shedding are snapshots. Are you sick now? The antibody test asks a different question. Have you been infected? Not necessarily now. Now, combining the two, they both could come back positive. But once someone has recovered, maybe even from an asymptomatic infection that was never tested, they could come back positive for antibodies and negative for virus, which means that that person, based on what we understand for other beta coronaviruses, we suspect that this will give immunity, at least in the near term, not lifelong immunity, but near term immunity. How long that near term immunity is? Is it many months or multiple years? And even multiple years would buy us a lot of time is something we need to begin to figure out if we're going to come up with long term strategies to beat this. What does that mean for our models? My general sense with with models is trash in, trash out, right? So if we don't have good data to start with, the models aren't going to be great. Am, am I thinking about that right? There are many ways in which models can be useful here. Asking them to perfectly mimic the underlying reality is asking too much of the models, but that doesn't mean that they can't be useful. 
So there's an old line, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Because we know that there's this ascertainment bias, we can try to use different pieces of the data with other information in areas that have, in some sense, systematically tried to investigate, whether longitudinally or by looking at hard-hit cases like the Diamond Princess cruise ship or other places in Wuhan, in which more data is available in a very focused way to begin to fill in what we think the state of the pandemic is in Georgia. With respect to long-term work, the models, even if we're uncertain about precisely, is it 1.5% of the population is sick, or 3%, or 2%, or even 0.75%, all of those are nowhere close to 100%, right? And so the other things that models can tell us is that if we were to go relax social distancing back to business as usual scenarios, these models may differ on precisely the time of the second wave, or precisely maybe there are certain things that we could do to keep it a plateau, but they are going to tell us as they keep warning us that we remain susceptible to a significant rebound in cases. So I think that's a way in which that can guide long-term decision-making, even if there's going to be uncertainty about when that would happen. The question I was going to ask you then was based on what you have been seeing and hearing, what happens here? But it maybe even seems that framing the question in that way is not not appropriate. A model is not going to tell me the future. So let me first caution about the certainty in models. And I think that a model that says the peak happens on this date, and I think some of the listeners may have heard about this University of Washington model, this IHME model that has been predicting a particular peak time. And again, the problem, even with that language, is that there's nothing intrinsic about the virus to suggest if a peak were to happen at a certain date, that somehow the danger has passed. And this returns to a theme we started on. So in that sense of certainty, we should be very cautious. A model could tell you about a week ahead, maybe two. We don't want to have a scenario in which we go back to business as usual and the models say, look, this is going to be this massive second wave. That is not the point. The point is how can we continue to use them to avoid increasing cases, but also try to have a balance. And I think those who are making models here on this one component recognize there are many ancillary costs of sheltering in place, socioeconomically, other health costs. So I think it's the real question here is how can we continue to integrate modeling as part of our intervention toolkit? And that's what I think almost everyone is trying to do, not just predicting one week ahead. Um, it's not a horse race, right? We don't want the winner to be anything other than us. We would like there to be fewer cases, fewer hospitalizations and deaths. How do we use models to strategically get towards that goal? Joshua Weitz is a quantitative biologist at Georgia Tech. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening.
Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.